Tēnā koutou, kulaksakat, this is your host Arsiatakun here at Why Words and Ideas Podcast, and this is part two of Wa Meakai Food. I previously introduced some ideas of thinking about food in broad terms and the role that it plays within our society and some of the power and politics around it, and want to kind of continue to expand on that. But looking at a few examples and thinking about a few things in regards to the role that food plays uh, within cultures, within ancestral and indigenous knowledge, uh, the intimate relations that we may or may not have or have forgotten or or may not know in regards to certain foods and uh, particular traditions around them. Uh, and then just kind of building again on that question of where does our food come from? Where did it come from? Uh, what has disrupted uh, these particular foodways or food systems? what can or should be recovered, what should be remade or made anew, as just a few points to think of or questions to be considering uh, in regards to this. And so to start this one off, I wanted to think about the role that food has as pedagogy, pedagogy referring to the transmission of knowledge and want to uh, say, you know, Amalo Apito to Kehao Folau, who uh, shared a master's thesis with me by um, Daya Shah around food pedagogy and um, Shah has some really great points in, ta- in thinking about the role that food plays within communicating knowledge and in, in particular looking at immigrant experiences or diaspora experiences uh, and the role that food plays in in those particular groups and settings but which is something that also exists beyond that also as well just this may have a particular role for them who, who maybe lose access in the process of being marginalized or through mobility. And some of the themes that Shah talks about is that there's a huge role in food knowledge and handling and preparing food with, with your hands and the role that food takes as it gets formed into communication. So if you think about if you like to cook, you know, what happens when you're preparing food with other people, if you're doing that communally. Um, also, how does food you know, cultivate particular types of relationships and communication when you're eating together with people? Um, and so uh, Shaw talks about how there's this multi- multi-dimensional lens for learning and a, a huge wealth of cultural knowledge and uh, transmission that takes place intergenerationally with the groups of people that they worked with and connection that happened between generations and elders and you know thinking about uh, the food knowledge that is often not recognized uh, within other kind of forms of knowledge production such as in a school or a university setting yet the incredible value that it has within these communities and even as a society as large also uh, the role of gender such as like with grandmothers and the important role that they they, that they play within this and so that reminded me a lot of uh, Vandana Shiva who talks about grandmother's knowledge a lot in her work and thinking about food and how that is such an incredible knowledge, right? To know how to produce food, how to prepare food, and how that is also a form of transmitting other knowledges as well through story, uh, doing, uh, emotion, and, and and so on and so on. And so, you know, I really enjoyed looking through that master's thesis. Made me think of the many roles that it plays within food, right? So you think about who do you break bread with, you know, like 
that might be your close relations. And I think, you know, food is something that's quite intimate. You think about, I don't know, at least for me, in the context that I grew up, you know, going to eat when I, when you're dating, like, can be, uh, can reveal a lot of things about you or another person. Like, what do you order? What do you not order? How much do you eat? How much do you not eat? Um, and that can reveal a lot about your identity, that person's identity, and so on and so forth. And whether you're, you know, thinking about, oh, man, am I going to get food stuck in my teeth? Or uh, am I going to eat in a certain way or not? Or, you know, all those kinds of things, whether you feel comfortable to do what you usually do or whether you change your behaviors. And I think that's because food is is this intimate thing, right? Like you reveal a sense of kind of vulnerability through it. And it remained me, you know, as I've been thinking about, you know, food pedagogy and the transmission of knowledge, it also reminded me of, of a few different examples, one being uh, from my readings and experiences, you know, within, within a Tongan context, for example, and looking at some of the old um, records um, that um, talk about kind of certain protocols around eating food, um, certain foods, who eats what. And I'm not going to go into too much detail with it, but there's one in particular that I think kind of speaks to the sense of vulnerability, which is that there was a, a particular tapu, not tapu being something that is set apart or protected or, or restricted or in some terms is referred to as quote-unquote sacred. And for chiefs or high chiefs, you in some cases would not look at them. You would have to turn away if you were eating and if, especially if they're eating as well. And part of it was to protect them or to protect you from their mana, their authority, their power that is revealed in kind of like them opening their mouth or, or consuming food. And so I think there's a couple of things going on in there, of course, that you can think about, but it does to me reveal kind of the sense of the vulnerability of eating, right? And so part of it is like to to protect this chief or high chief or this representative of a particular lineage or a particular people, you know, you can become quite vulnerable when you're eating. And so like this might be a, a way of kind of protecting that person and, and minimizing the potential threats that may take place or happen. You know, there may be certain protocols within other rituals as well to prevent any harm to come upon a particular person. And this is, is not necessarily unique to the context of Tonga. If you think about even Europe and, you know, royalty and kingdom and queens and and the various monarchies that have existed you know like <laughs> you might have food tester taste testers you know to make sure nobody's poisoned your drink or whatever and even then sometimes it would still happen and so there is this sense of vulnerability on that hand but also maybe you have your hand your, your guard down when you're eating because you're focused on eating and so there is this kind of vulnerability and to me that reveals something as well as to kind of the the significance of food. And so with that, I want to kind of talk about one other example um, that I've experienced here in in Aotearoa specifically, which is um, whenever there's a hui or a gathering or or a meeting with Tangata Whenua, with with Māori, um, you know, if you're having it at the Whareanui, at the meeting house, then you you go through pōwhiri or pōhiri. You're you're met at the pā or at the gate, the entrance, of of the complex by a warrior doing a wedo or a challenge and you have this kind of cautious calculated to figure out what's the intentions of, of people's meeting during this day and then women are the ones that begin to speak in a sense they sing they chant you on and so 
welcoming you on, but also responding you somebody, you know, if you've accepted that you're coming with pe- in peace, for example, right? You know, you're coming in with, with good intentions. And so the women, in a sense, negotiate through their call and response, your crossing of the marai, the field, before you enter into the farinui, the meeting house. And then there's speeches made by other men, and there's different protocols depending on the group of people you're with, on who speaks first or how many speak and, and so on and so forth. And once that has occurred and, and any beef that may exist has been stated or resolved or whatever, or welcoming and, and praising and all of those things, then you hongi, you greet, and maybe it's one pressing of the nose, maybe it's two, again, depending on what group of people you're with and, and you share breath together. And then after all that is done, after all these kind of maybe we might call formalities occur, you go to the farakai, to to the house of food or the house where you eat and you share a meal together. And so it kind of says that, okay, we've done all these things. Now we can unite for the purpose of gathering. It's faqanoa. It, it neutralizes the, the tapu and the manna of the particular uh, gathering and again because it food kind of reveals this vulnerability and so you can now be vulnerable with one another because you have gone through this process to say okay come with good intentions all right you're welcomed in you you maybe have your speeches of praise or negotiation or whatever it might be and you've greeted one another and now you can do that and so there's there's a lesson there i think also that reveals that that kind of the role that food has in opening up and sharing a sense of intimacy and closeness and uh, a good tokana of, of, of mine, Troy Wihongi, who is uh, both Tongan and, and Māori, shared with me that you're, you're invoking the ancestors in, in this process, right? And so there, there's an intensified manna generating. There's an authority that's being generated in order to, to calibrate with the protections, the tapu that exists between two different peoples that have to negotiate their presence together with each other. And in doing so, you generate a new tapu and a new manna, right? And that is because you've invoked, you know, upon ancestors who are now present and and they are in this metaphysical realm or a spiritual realm, if you will. And in order to then um, neutralize that, to in order to whanoa or neutralize that, then you eat, right? And And he explained to me that, you know, because eating is something that's physical, it's something that the physical realm engages or participates with it, it then, you know, kind of neutralizes the presence of ancestors and the deceased and and the metaphysical realm. And so there's knowledge that's being transmitted in that process. Um, This is also one that takes place, you know, he shared with me uh, in, in Kava ritual and ceremony, which I'll save for another episode in the future. But just to reiterate how food has all these incredible lessons in different contexts, if we're paying attention and learning, um, or if we maybe know these things already and are transmitting them or reliving them or refining uh, a mastery of them um, in the process. There are all these uh, other knowledges that are embedded within food traditions as well. And, you know, it's interesting because when I, I remember I was taking a class many years ago now 
when I first started going to uni, Pain and looking at Mesoamerican um, archaeology. And, you know, I learned that corn was consumed at such a high level, we're looking at two-thirds of the diet, right? So 66%. And then you have maybe another 20-25% that is of those sister plants of beans, corn, and squash. Now, that's primarily a plant-based diet. Now, there was also animal foods used there as well, but didn't have as much of a prominent role as um, these other foods that are being kind of produced through agriculture. So, and then the kind of meats that were being consumed were game meats, which are very different than domesticated industrial meat <laughs> that we consume today. So, you know, things like deer, or, or in the case of Mesoamerica, also taper, you know, fish, turkey, and, and so on and so forth. You know, if we went further south, then even, you know, alpaca or, or llama, or if we went further north, bison, um, and, and so on and so forth. And these game meats don't have, at least to my knowledge, from what I've seen, th those ones that I've mentioned, don't have cholesterol. Um, they also don't have trans fat, which is some, both are the things that cause so many issues with the consumption of meat, such as high blood pressure and the like, which is something that domesticated industrialized meats do have. And so it's interesting to me that even the meats that we had in our in our diet ancestrally were free of some of those things that come with uh, modern uh, meats that, that we consume. But then at the same time, like there's so many other diets that exist, you know, like when for the South, we think about the Andean diet or, you know, Nabi Yala or, you know, South America, respectively. Potatoes come from there, you know, and there's thousands of types of, of potatoes. They also had corn as well. But potatoes had a much more prominent role. Quinoa, which has become quite a, a big thing as well now today. It's always interesting for me to observe, even just in the last five years, living here in Aotearoa, the increasing number of vegan options, which is also what caused me to begin thinking about this further, right? Like the hipster market, you know, as much grief as and, and hard time I give it, you know, has introduced a lot of these these um, other products that I wasn't used to seeing so much of before. And so it is interesting to think of, but at the same time, thinking about where does this stuff come from? How does it affect the those sites and indigenous sources? So, you know, if quinoa is being consumed more by people outside of those who ancestrally, you know, developed and, and relied on it, that becomes an issue. Avocado is another one that's become hugely popular, right? And, and comes from the like Mesoamerica region ancestrally. But even within all those different foods, you know, sometimes you need to supplement with different things. And when I went to Costco uh, a few years ago now, I remember, you know, I was, I was in Salt Lake, which is a very high altitude. It's about a little over 4,000 feet or 1,300 meters above sea level, right? So it's already a high altitude place. And then if you go hiking, you can get even higher. But Costco was like super high altitude. Um, 13,000 feet or just about 4,000 meters above sea level. And even though I had come from a high altitude place, this is um, almost triple what I was used to. And I remember feeling like fine until I started walking. <laughs> and then I was getting lightheaded. And, you know, some people said, oh, go have some coca tea and whatnot. And then I, in this process, I, you know, came to learn that coca, like whether you chew it or whether you boil it with some water, it dilates your blood vessels, allowing blood to flow, which is what carries oxygen throughout your body, right? It takes oxygenated blood from your heart to the rest of your body, and it brings deoxygenated blood back to your heart to get oxygenated again. And so having dilated blood vessels helps in that process. And so that's why it helps with altitude sickness. 
But another thing is it actually has calcium. So with all these amazing different foods that this region had ancestrally, it still was deficient with, for calcium. And coca leaves uh, fulfilled that nutritional gap. And so that was interesting and, and for me to learn like, how this sacred plant takes on many roles, both ritual function and everyday kind of social purpose and even as a staple in some regards. And so that reminded me of, you know, the, the way that we would prepare corn. And I talked about this in an earlier episode, what has been termed nishtamalization, that would actually infuse uh, calcium as well within that process. And so there's so many things that are often embedded within um, different food sources. So there's often all these knowledges that are embedded within food traditions and food knowledge. And it's not always clearly identified in this way, at least in my experience, but it is nonetheless often indirectly ingrained through the transmission of knowledge, um, such as through different food pedagogies. And so it's something to think about as well, like what kind of foods do you have close relationships with or that you have inherited and thinking about how you've learned to relate to that particular food. And again, there could be various ones. It could be like my problematic relationship to rice that I talked about in part one of this, um, or it could be my kind of deep knowledge of corn, which is another one. And, and you know, having to unlearn one thing and relearn or uh, re-relate or, or expanding other things. You know, some things that hopefully are of interest to you as well as you think about food some more. to also share a couple of examples from uh, different parts of the world and one being one that I'm that I'm living in you know I do a lot of work in as well here in the Moana in uh, Wonsawara and one of the things that I, I learned initially when I started getting into seriously studying this region or coming to better understand it having had many relationships growing up with people from this region in, in Utah um, I took a class with um, Adrian Villami Bell who was the first person who took me to Tonga back in 2012. The rest is history now. But in the in the classes that I was taking with him at that time, I was introduced to this term that archaeologists of the region had talked about, which was a transported landscape, which is referring to kind of the, the initial uh, movement of people from what we would term islands Southeast Asia today as it ex as they expanded about 3,000 years ago across the the entire expanse of the Moana. And this transported landscape term refers to the the movement of both animals and plants that transformed these new places as well with the people and the things that they brought with them. And this process, in a sense, brought things that people were familiar with, but then adapted and changed and were integrated or, or not with local settings, depending on the circumstance, such as one of the last migrations in this process here in Aotearoa. You know, it's a much colder place here. We're no longer in the tropic zones. There are certain things that did grow in certain areas and some things that didn't such as, let's say, kumara or certain types of taro. But then there was other things that didn't. And so there was an adaptation to trying to figure out how to live in this new place. But in this process, um, there were many uh, species of plants, such as uh, these root tubers, taro, yams, coconuts, bananas, breadfruit, also a variety of animals such as chickens, dogs, pigs. Uh, the earth oven is also getting picked up along the way, such as especially a lot in coastal what we would call the, the Papuas today. And as these things are moving, they're 
it's a, in a sense, it's a landscape that's being transported to these different places with the cultivation of all of these um, food sources that are being brought along with, with people. And in each case, you know, in any case, whenever people interact with a new environment, there's always this negotiation and caution of figuring out this new place and, and finding out a sustainable way to live in a particular place. And sometimes, you know, certain things get stressed quite heavily in the early parts of that contact and then people have to adapt. You know, in the case of, of Tonga, one of the things I remember was, you know, looking at the archaeological record, there were certain foods that, animal foods that were kind of being used quite heavily and it caused stress, ecological stress, but then you see those populations kind of begin to bounce back, such as, let's say, the fodnu or turtle. And it's interesting to think about the role that tapu played, right? There's how those might have been restricted or prohibited to particular kind of chiefly groups of people, which was a way of, you know, one, making it exclusive to that group, but at the same time, uh, also had a kind of ecological logic behind it as well. And so thinking about how that has changed with the change in, uh, with the onslaught of kind of capitalism and modernity and, and, and what have you. Uh, but plants play such an incredibly important role, whether it's mats, which have a practical function or have a gifting, chiefly function, clothing, sails, uh, baskets, cordage. I mean, you think about the coconut tree, for example. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tree of life and uh, I mean, it provides timber. The, the leaves are, can be used for uh, roofing. You mata the young coconut that has lots of water, which is rich in nutrients. And if you don't have a, an easily fresh you know, water source, then you can have that. Um, I, I believe it can even be used as a substitute for an IV if you ever needed to in kind of survival settings today. And, and then you have the, the ripe coconut uh, or new that, you know, you can use when you husk it, you can use that to start fires. You can use that husk also to create rope and cords. Coconut itself you can use for, for ipu or cups, which are today used in uh, for kava or, or so many different things. I mean, it, it's just incredible the, the, the role, the versatility of these plants, you know, and even in the case of Tonga, one of the things that I always enjoy reading about in kind of these early encounters was, you know, how clean people would observe tongues to be and, and even even like smelling nice, you know, like creating these scented oils with fragrant flowers and coconut oil or, you know, turmeric or all these other plants that were available. And so it's it not only was kind of utility functions, but even the sense of luxury and an incredible amount of knowledge uh, regarding to all these plants, some of which are encountered upon initially arriving to these areas, but also, you know, those that are being transported across the Moana in these early uh, migrations. And so there's so many foods and so many examples. And maybe at some point we'll look at some more specifically, but there, you know, there's so much that, um, that exists in there. And these are deeply embedded within, again, the worldviews with uh, of these places I, and and again my reading and understanding of it at least in this context seem to be if not primarily heavily a plant-based diet and of course the other foods that you're having are things like sea creatures you know seafood fish and the like and and this is where it gets tricky for me thinking about food because some of these ancestral diets and indigenous diets were heavily disrupted or have been heavily disrupted or continue to be because of our modern industrial food systems. Um, whereas some of these things were 
in some cases sustainably fished or hunted in the past are no longer able to be and in many cases not because of the people themselves that have have this relationship but because of these kind of larger world systems that have caused an immense stress on these things and so one example the tragedy of whaling uh, across the world and you know kind of commercial and industrial whaling which really begins in the colonial era and continues and intensifies that has dramatically stressed these areas and in the case of Tonga like whales were hunted um, they're not anymore they're now protected with kind of an a creative uh, adaptation that has uh, looked to kind of ecotourism. There are other issues and challenges there, but it's an interesting thing to think about an adaptation. That isn't the case with sea turtles at the moment, but I wonder if that might also be uh, something in the future because the incredibly important role that sea turtles play ecologically, but then also the, the increasing stresses either because of a change of relationship and also these larger world systems. And even a lot of the big fish that you you know we eat, you know, like have become so heavily uh, impacted by mercury or even microplastics that you know, how is that impacting, you know, again, so this is goes to this back to the idea I introduced in part one around ideas of food sovereignty. But then, you know, what do you revitalize and what do you have to adapt? Because the world, you know, maybe outside of your own doing has changed. And now you have to confront these other things. This is also an issue, let's say, in, in the Arctic, where, again, thinking about healthy diets, there's such a diversity when we look at indigenous ancestral food sources because while my ancestors were primarily eating these plant-based foods and maybe even the case in some parts of the Moana uh, with the integration of seafood and other things, in the Arctic, I mean, it's we're looking at, I believe, close to 90% meat, right? Sea mammals and fish and the like has at times been looked at as an anomaly because while there is such a high meat consumption in this quote-unquote traditional diet, there is extremely low rates of high blood pressure and heart disease. And again, if you recall, when you're talking about game meats, there isn't the same trans fats or cholesterol that you find in domesticated modern uh, in, you know, industrialized food that was imported and from Europe and had not only did they cause it an incredibly intense ecological impact, with the the industries, particularly cows, pigs it's, uh, as well. Again, I'm talking through modern domesticates. It, it's a completely different system. And so you have this traditional diet in the Arctic that now, you know, it's it's controversial to hunt whales, yet they've been doing it for so many years and they did it sustainably and it's, they didn't cause the massive decline. Mm-hmm. I remember there was an interesting couple of scenes in the film The Miracle, if you've ever seen that, where that comes up, this, this tension between Greenpeace and this uh, indigenous community in the Arctic around these kind of modern ideas and responses to it, but then not taking into consideration the role of the disruption to different food sources and diets. And likewise, another uh, big example of that is the tragedy of, of the bison on Turtle Island, where in the plains, this also, again, from what I recall, took a class with Sean Carlisle ages ago, who was a genetic anthropologist, where we were looking at, you know, it was like 80%, I think, of the diet had come to be uh, around bison. That may have not been the case before but once horses were introduced um, and you were able to follow herds in a more efficient manner um, 
the invention of the teepee also takes place at that time as well. If you think about it right now, you can haul these poles behind horses and have this kind of mobile or increasingly mobile, not to say they weren't before, but an increasingly mobile group of people. And then depending almost primarily from a meat source and healthy, even on today's standards. Again, bison doesn't have the things that cause heart disease that are often associated with meat. So what kind of meat? So that's why, like, even though I've been exploring, kind of looking at the vegan stuff, like, I'm, I'm doing it critically because looking at it, uh, indigenous or ancestral perspective, I, at least in my understanding and observation and study and research, there's examples of people eating a lot of meat, people eating a lot of plants. Now, anciently, all the way back, plants have always had an important role. And in every setting, plants have a significant role. But so does meat, from what I can see. And so my question is always, what kind of plants, what kind of meat? Because in both settings, it becomes whether it's GMOs or whether it's industrialized meat production, these are serious changes and have massive not only ecological impacts, but health impacts and political uh, impacts, uh, equity uh, issues uh, in our world today. So just trying to think about this stuff critically. And th the last thing you know I want to leave is you know with one of the things that I remember learning when looking at kind of the bison economy, if you will, was that this is another cool thing for me. I was like, man, like the first guns that show up, planes folks didn't want anything to do with them because they were so inefficient. Like the the bows and arrows that they had were more efficient for hunting bison than even these early rifles that uh, were being brought over and so they just wanted nothing to do with it and then once they started to improve then they began to trade for some of these and were always trying to get the the newest model if you will which they were adapting into to their culture just like they did with with the horse and the intimate relation that they they have there and so you know it, you know that actually led to you know, one of the reasons why it was so devastating the, the losses that the U.S. Uh, military had against many of the Plains people, such as the Lakota, you know, because they had these very efficient firearms, they very sustainably living off of Tatanka or bison economy, and uh, were able to efficiently defend their, their lands for a, a long time. And, you know, even at this moment, right, from my notes that I have, which probably need some updating so take it with a grain of salt but from what i was studying a few years back i believe it was estimated to be anywhere around 350 to 450,000 bison killed per year from hunting in the peak of of this era right with efficient rifles with horses and the like even at that level it's only two percent of the total estimated bison population which was anywhere between 27 and 30 million. And so, you know, here's a culture, a variety of cultures actually, who are relying on bison as their primary, you know, source of calories and have all kinds of worldview, spiritual, sacred, cosmological relationships as well. And absolutely seem to be living in a, a sustainable way even at the peak of what we would say that the peak of their their um, hunting practices and so when you begin to think about it in that terms and this doesn't take into account maybe a fluctuating rate slightly of maybe thinking about other animals that also prey on on bison such as uh, wolves or, or the like now you think about the u.s and the construction of the trans-pacific railroad and the massacre of millions of bison I mean, an absolute just tragedy. And if you look up some of the pictures of like just incredible amounts of bison skulls, talk about food waste, some of the initial food waste of just massacring these bison to quote unquote clear the way for this railroad, but really also to undermine 
a sustainable life way and food way for a variety of uh, indigenous cultures in the plains region and you see the again the, the the politics of food and the role of power and this massive tragedy again you know where you look at that there could have been a completely different relationship to food or even meat in in the case of the, this region of the world and so you know with that it's kind of a heavier note but think about the role again that these food ways play right and as much as advocate for reconnecting and revitalizing a lot of these food sources and food systems i'm also cautious as well because the world has changed so much and tragically and unfortunately often not by the hands of the people that indigenous folks who are working to reconnect or revitalize or having to reinvent food ways and food sources and relationships to food we nonetheless are forced to do so to think about what is sustainable today what is ecologically balanced today what is equitable today and then also having the foresight of what is that in the future with the direction that the world is continually going and think that taking our food seriously, taking our relationship to food seriously, and as much as we are able to, because again, there's a lot of root causes that take a lot of this oftentimes outside of our hands, unfortunately or tragically, and those of us who have the ability to, and even those who don't, who, who do this anyway, you know, it's important to um, think about what things can we do to recalibrate with our relationships to food, as much as we need to with each other as well. I'll leave that with all of you. Um, thanks again for listening. Uh, and until the next time, Sibalak Matyosh, many thanks.